This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Talking about what happened on Lock Street on Saturday night. And uh, it seems that uh, it had started initially uh, in a nearby park. And then when uh, police were called uh, to see what was going on, they were uh, pretty much outnumbered uh, by the group that was in the park. Uh, then at that point, I guess, uh, as they were trying to disperse the crowd, uh, they, uh, they went off in various directions and, and one of the, uh, I guess, uh, one of the group within this crowd ended up going down Lock Street. And then, of course, uh, you know the rest of the story, damaging things uh, along the way. We're just talking with Inspector Paul Hamilton, Hamilton Police Service. Uh, and again, you know, you, you get all of a sudden a, a whole pile of erratic calls. Uh, you know, some people thinking that it's there's house fires involved and it's fireworks and and you're not re- knowing what's really going on while all the time trying to set up a perimeter around this to, uh, you know, investigate and, and, and make sure you got enough uh, manpower on the ground uh, in order to handle uh, such a situation. So uh, new for everybody and certainly uh, not something that you're expecting on a Saturday night in Hamilton. Uh, let's bring in, uh, and, and the great thing is, as we were talking to Tony Greco, like uh, Lock Street BIA, is that uh, lots were supporting uh, Lock Street on Sunday and, and helping out and uh, the response they have got from the community and the city itself has has been just as overwhelming as uh, as Saturday night was. And, and of course, uh, on Saturday, this coming Saturday, hashtag Love Lock Day to find out more, uh, they're asking for you to, uh, and everybody is, to go down and support local businesses on Lock and help them uh, get their lives back to, uh, to normal. Let's bring in Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP, MPP, of course, for Hamilton Centre, and with us now. Andrea, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Hey, it's my pleasure, Scott. My pleasure. When did you hear about this? Uh, how did it come to your attention? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, first, so I live a couple blocks away. I was in Toronto on Saturday night, and I got a call from my son, and he was really worried. He said, you know, we thought we heard something like uh, gunshots or something. We didn't know what it was. Him and his girlfriend were, were at my place. Uh, he said, um, they looked outside, and I, I guess they saw the police who were starting to pull their, their group together right right near our, our, our house. And so, yeah, he was very worried. So that was the first heads up that I got that something was going on. And then, of course, my staff were quick to, uh, to start sending me some texts and emails to let me know what was happening. But what a frightening, uh, frightening night for, for everyone. Uh, what do we know about this group? Uh, what What are your thoughts on on how this appeared to be so well organized? Well, I mean, I think that's the thing that's most disturbing for folks. I mean, people went out; uh, they they gathered in a in a kind of a gang type of of uh, of group and, and that type of mentality, frankly, and uh, and were intent on creating uh, chaos. They were intent on ruining property and. Uh, and, and, and intimidating people and scaring people, and that's just not on. I mean, look, you know me, you know my history. I've been to many a demonstration, hmm. uh, right? But, but it's peaceful uh, demonstrations. It's, a, it's, you know, within the realm of what you do in a, in a, in a vibrant democracy. But this is not acceptable. Uh, purposely intimidating people, uh, bringing, the, you know, really what are handheld weapons, you know, stones, rocks, whatever, uh, to, to cause damage. Uh, it was just... Absolutely, and, and being all dressed in black and their faces covered, I mean, totally not acceptable, totally not acceptable, which is why on Sunday it was great to see, you know, people taking back their streets, right? Kids in strollers, 
you know, young families, senior citizens, you know, people walking their dogs, uh, all there to say, you know, there's more of us than them. This is our community. And uh, we're, we're taking it back. We're not going to be afraid. And, and you know, this is a, a largely residential area with businesses along Lock and Such, which has created its own character. So people live and, and work there. Uh, they must be shaken up by this. Well, I mean, absolutely. I, I bumped into some uh, people that live not too far from me that were telling me about cars and houses that were uh, that were damaged along the way, I guess, as, as these... Uh, uh, these guys were heading, or these guys and women, I mean, whatever, were heading uh, towards Lock Street. So around uh, the Aberdeen area, around Hess Street, apparently, uh, there was some damage done. And, you know, and so, yeah, it's a, it, it is absolutely, uh, it's, a, it's a small, quaint business district that's supported by vibrant residential neighborhoods all around it, right? The Duran neighborhood, the, the Strathcona neighborhood. I mean, it's just uh, uh, the Kirkendall neighborhood. I mean, all of those neighborhoods are walking distance to to Lock Street, and it's just uh, it's just really really worrisome for folks to to have this um, you know this violation of our community. Andrea, do we know anything about this group? Do we know anything of the background, how this originated, how it started, any of that yet? I mean, I don't think so. And I, I know you've been speaking with the police, and they would be the ones to be most uh, informed as to what their investigation is showing. I mean, there's been a lot of conjecture, right? A lot of people are making best guesses at who these folks were, uh, but, um, but really I don't think anybody knows for sure exactly who they are. Uh, but look, I mean, it, how cowardly is that? I mean, if you're going to make a statement, then have the courage of your conviction to, to say who you are and what, and what the point is that you're trying to make. I mean, this is, I think, the thing that makes it that much more cowardly and, and that much more worrisome. I mean, look, if you've got a beef, you know, come forward with it. Don't, um, you know, don't use this shadowy, in the middle of the night kind of, violent tactic to try to draw attention uh, and then not, you know, and, and then, you know, for what purpose, to what end? I mean, there's, it's, for, for so many reasons, it's just absolutely uh, disgraceful what's occurred and, and um, not, not something our community should have to face. And, and again, this isn't Hamilton, right? That's not what Hamilton's all about. What Hamilton's all about is what happened yesterday when people flooded the street and and showed their support and their concern. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you're, you're right. There, there, there is, doesn't seem to be a cause here. doesn't seem to be a motive. doesn't seem to be a reason. Uh, we are the ungovernables. Uh, it, it just seemed about anarchy. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, although it's really, um, you know, questionable as to if, if that's what it was about, as to what the, what to understand anarchy to be. Uh, but what it was really about was, was violence and terrorism. I mean, these folks terrorized the neighborhood. Uh, shame on them. I mean, that's absolutely not, um, that's not on. That's not what it, what it's about. And, and I, I think that, um, I think that, you know, we have to be really clear as a city and as a, as a province and as a country, frankly, that this kind of, this kind of behavior is not, um, acceptable. It's, it's not acceptable. And so I'm really hoping that people will share any information they have with the police and that, uh, that the police are able to do a good job in, um, in bringing some of these people to justice because uh, we have to show them very, very clearly that this is not something that our society is prepared to tolerate. Uh, any sort of common denominator with any of the businesses that were attacked? I mean, do, some have been saying that perhaps this is a group that does not want to see Hamilton develop, does not want to see this renaissance that we're going through. D- did they attack certain businesses over others, new businesses? Uh, any well, light on that? The thing that's sad about it is that uh, that virtually every business that was attacked was uh, was like a mom and pop small business. I'm sure Tony Dre- Greco uh, was saying yeah. that as well. I mean, look, it's 
they were people that worked 12, 14, 16 hours a day on their feet all day, uh, seven days a week in some cases, just to, to serve their, their customers, right? I mean, small business people are some of the most hardworking people around because, you know, they don't have a boss to go complain to. They have to deal with everything themselves. I mean, we know the Donut Monster had to, like, tell, call 18 people to tell them not to come in uh, to the overnight uh, cooking, uh, like, baking uh, shift, right? So, so, yes, it's the business owners, but it's also the people that work in these businesses, right? So the two or three or, in some cases, 10 or 12 staff uh, that uh, that work there, they lost shifts as well. So it hurts their, uh, you know, their uh, bottom line, if you will. Uh, so it, it, it's really, really uh, frustrating. The other thing is, let's face it, Lock Street has been turning around, if you will, has been, yeah. you know, uh, it has been changing from, for years now. It's mm. not the most recent example of investment and renewal mm. in our city. I mean, it's been doing that for years. And so if that was the point, then they're off the mark because that's not one of the most recent areas uh, to see that kind of revitalization, right? It's been ongoing for a number of years now. Uh, talk about what's happening on Saturday. Well, on Saturday, we're uh, just inviting people to come back to Lock Street and to, uh, uh, to Love Lock. I mean, we're calling it, you know, Love Lock Day. Uh, because I think a lot of people were caught unawares, and, and even yesterday were just finding out, and even today maybe just finding out about what happened on the weekend. And so uh, so we just decided, well, let's just put it out there and, and say on Saturday the 10th of March, let's everybody come to Lock Street, you know, the Saturday following that incident, and, um, you know, and show our support for the businesses. And if you've got a little shopping to do, then do it on Lock Street. Otherwise, come for a coffee or, a, you know, a lunch or just a stroll, and, and just let's, let's show... Uh, you know, very, very clearly uh, that not only do we love Lock Street, uh, but that as Hamiltonians, we uh, we take care of our own. How concerned as a leader are you, Andrea, about this sort of thing happening again? Is this a one-time event? I mean, how do you move forward with this? Well, I mean, that's why I'm so um, curious and interested to see what, uh, you know, what the investigation uncovers uh, from the police. And I'm certainly, myself and my staff are trying to monitor what we can ourselves on, on, you know, Facebook and social media and Twitter and all of that uh, to see what people are, are saying. Because, look, uh, this, if this is the beginning of something that's going to continue, uh, you know, not only here in Hamilton, but in other communities, uh, then we need to find a way to, uh, to be uh, able to shut it down real quick. Because that's, uh, I mean, we're just seeing some of the shop owners, they're literally shaking uh, from, uh, you know, from the you know, just the, the adrenaline and the, the, hmm. the worry that they had after going through that experience on Saturday night. It's a, you wouldn't wish something on that, on, wish like something like that on anybody. It was terrible. And so we can't let this kind of thing uh, continue to happen. And so whether it's this group or another group looking at this group and saying, well, that sounds like a good idea, we have to shut that down. And so hopefully the police will also have some, you know, some ideas and some recommendations, uh, you know, to share not only... Uh, with uh, you know, with other police forces, but with the province as well, uh, around how to um, you know how to be prepared for this for the potential of this occurring again, and I'll certainly be raising that uh, uh, in uh, you know in, in in Toronto. Andrea Horbath has been with us, leader of the Ontario NDP MPP for Hamilton Centre, and of course area resident, talking about what happened on Lock Street, and of course don't forget hashtag Love Lock Day and Saturday, get down and support local merchants. Uh, Andrea, thanks so much for the time, much appreciated. Good luck with all this. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. 
let's talk about, and remember, just uh, late last week, uh, Hamiltonians, especially those at the Chamber of Commerce uh, and in the steel industry, just buzzing with uh, the announcement that uh, U.S. President Donald Trump was going to slap tariffs on steel and aluminum. Uh, to clarify, the U.S. has now said that Canada will probably not be excluded from these tariffs and there will be no relief from tariffs. Uh, until there is a new and fair free trade deal. To talk more about all of this, Bridget Matisson is with us, Director of Canada-U.S. Border uh, Business Affairs with Aaron Fox LLP Law Firm in Washington, D.C., and is with us now. Bridget, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, I'm delighted. Thank you. Bridget, how much support is there for this in the United States? It seems we're getting mixed signals from this. Is it good? Is it bad? Who wants this? Who doesn't? Right. Um, so the uh, the players in this uh, uh, dramatic uh, event, series of events, um, are in fact quite polarized. And I'll, maybe your listeners might find this uh, interesting. Um, it would appear that how this happened was uh, you will everyone will recall that the president on the campaign trail and early in his administration had said he wanted to do quote unquote something on steel and aluminum, and. Uh, early in his administration, he directed the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, to look at those issues. Well, a week or so ago, uh, the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, in fact, released his uh, results of the investigations on the harm to U.S. national security interests of imports of certain steel and certain aluminum. And uh, in each investigation, gave the president three or four varying recommendations from which to choose from. Uh, so that was, uh, what, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, uh, if not sooner. So what happened is that when these reports came out, uh, everyone uh, realized that the timeline and the clock would start ticking on when the president would have to make a decision. Um, uh, a lot of other issues were swirling in Washington that were of concern to this president and this uh, Oval Office. And he con- and the president, a few days ago, convened a meeting with uh, industry executives, particularly in the steel and aluminum industries. That was supposed to have been an announcement of what he was going to do on tariffs, which eventually now is 10%, 25% on steel. Um, uh, however... Up to that evening, uh, when the invitations to these executives were already out, um, there was an awful lot of pushback within the White House and from leaders in Congress uh, on a bipartisan basis. And to be fair, there were also loud cries of support for these tariffs uh, within the administration and within Congress. But all of that debate happened the evening before. And so when, uh, when your listeners saw the meeting at the White House with the industry executives, that was not supposed to be the announcement. The uh, president had said, we will delay the announcement and we'll take a look at it a little bit longer. Well, right. at the end of that meeting, he, he said and, uh, and announced to the world the 10% and 25% tariffs. So uh, it's quite um, uh, contentious. It remains to be very contentious here in Washington and, of course, around the world, as you know. So uh, uh, as, as, as of today, uh, every, from all accounts here in Washington, the president's going to go ahead with his uh, tariffs and is likely to formally announce it uh, possibly at the end of this week or early next week. 
Uh, how does he do that if there are so many against this? Uh, because he wants to, and he has made a decision that this is in the national security interests of the United States, and he can do it under U.S. trade law as an executive action. And in fact, uh, when he, when and if, but when he does announce it, it'll be in the form of a presidential proclamation. And if history serves us um, on these types of investigations, that proclamation will also give uh, the global industry very, very little time to adjust. It's probably going to be a 15-day implementation period. Uh, you, you, many have talked about U.S. security interests. What does that mean in all of this? We're talking about steel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, according to the Department of Commerce investigations and their findings, uh, the importation of these steel and aluminum products have um, uh, gutted the U.S. market and has rendered U.S. domestic production uh, incapable of competing and therefore has hurt um, the, uh, the, the production volume of U.S. domestic steel and aluminum. That means, therefore, that the U.S. ability to produce steel and aluminum for U.S. bridges and airplanes and Air Force One and car manufacturing and all the other industries in the United States that are linked to U.S. national security interests. And in this particular case, for this administration, national security equals economic security. Hmm. Um, will this hurt more than it helps? When will we know? Well, that is the question du jour, and that is exactly the right question. Um, uh, there are many, many, many economists in the United States and elsewhere who have said that this will hurt U.S. economic interest in the short and in the long run. Um, uh, if tariffs are applied it immediately, the thinking goes that the price and availability of U.S. domestic steel and aluminum will, the price will go up, the supply will go down. That will have a ripple effect throughout uh, the American manufacturing sector, let alone the global manufacturing sector. Um, uh, when will we know? Uh, we will know as soon as the president makes that quote-unquote formal announcement, and it'll be in days. Uh, stock prices have dropped with this announcement so far. He was quite uh, braggadocious when it came to stock prices and his election. How does he justify this? Uh, he, uh, the president, from all appearances and his remarks and his twitters and um, the uh, cabinet members Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro. Uh, um, during the Sunday morning talk show circuits um, here in uh, the United States, um, are, uh, are, are, have made the argument that this is good for American jobs and American economic interests. And uh, the Wilbur Ross at least um, suggested, as the president did earlier today, that there is no, uh, either there's not going to be a trade war or the trade war could be, quote-unquote, easily won. That is the current thinking in the White House today. How does Donald Trump come out of this appearing like it's a win? To many, many people in the United States, uh, uh, this does appear like a win. Um, He has made it very clear on the campaign trail. And one of the reasons uh, why he won the election in those critical states, including Pennsylvania, but elsewhere, um, is that these kind of uh, bullish 
blunt indis- uh, blunt application of U.S. trade law, i.e. tariffs, um, will result in a positive and net economic gain for the United States. Um, now, that being said, I have to also be fair to your listeners. Uh, the counter-arguments to that uh, is... Uh, uh, is thunderous here in Washington this morning. So what would be the first response to these actions? How will life for Americans or even Canadians change if these are implemented? The, um, uh, the proclamation will be issued. There will be 15 days, uh, maybe longer, maybe shorter, but it's usually 15 days. Um, immediately, uh, companies who use steel and aluminum in the United States are going to have to look at their contracts, their purchase contracts. They're going to have to decide uh, when these tariffs come into effect for the shipments that they have. Uh, the price of U.S. steel and aluminum is reportedly going to go up. So whatever they make is going to go up and whatever their uh, end customers make with their steel and aluminum products is going to go up. Um, the supply is going to go down, as I mentioned earlier. So that in, in itself increases prices. Uh, consumers uh, will feel the pinch when these prices for durable goods, such as an automobile, but, you know, uh, beverage cans, uh, uh, a long range of products, um, uh, when the prices will go up. And uh, when or if uh, production of certain, com- of certain products may shift out of the United States. Um, how much of this is about leveraging na- using this to leverage yeah. NAFTA? <coughs> Excuse me. That's an excellent question. I um, was just thinking about that before uh, you asked me to join the uh, this conversation. Um, this morning in a, um, I'm not sure if you caught it, but this morning in the uh, White House uh, in the uh, welcoming ceremony for the Israeli Prime Minister, the uh, president was asked, um, about Canada and Mexico uh, in the uh, scope of the 232 investigations. Um, he, uh, it appeared to me in listening to his remarks that he uh, is not contemplating any carve-outs for Canada or Mexico. That may change, but that appeared to be the remarks over the weekend and this morning. However, that he could also use the opportunity of the NAFTA talks to achieve his objectives on steel and aluminum. I would imagine that Ottawa is well aware of this and is planning accordingly. Is this all part of the art of the deal? Is this all part of the dance? Um, uh, you or, know, or has this gone beyond that now? <laughs> you know, I think it's gone, be, uh, it's gone beyond that. You know, the president is very, very proud of his deal-making capabilities. Um, that's uh, no news to anyone. Um, I think uh, I think so much is um, uh, is linked with uh, uh, his wanting to be to appear very very tough on trade, and trade just seems to be with the NAFTA and everything else just seems to be the subject du jour for which this could uh, spring up. Um, so it's but the but this transactional approach to all of these issues. You know as well as I do, they have ripple effects, and um, relationships are going to change. Uh, that's a very strong possibility. How do other leaders and business respond to this? I mean, obviously, if you're in the steel yeah. industry in the U.S., you're pretty happy. What about, uh, but that's just a segment. What about the yeah. rest of industry? Right. Well, uh, there are a number of uh, U.S. industry uh, interests, including the U.S. automotive parts, the uh, U.S. Um, 
the OEMs and the uh, final assemblers in the United States, uh, who, uh, bridge construction folks who are very, very worried and have uh, been uh, very public in their concerns. Paul Ryan, the, uh, um, the head of the GOP in the House, the Speaker of the House in Congress, um, have, has, has, has urged the President to think twice on this. Camps are very divided. Uh, there's hardly any gray area. It's not a nuanced conversation. It's going to be very, very good for some people, and it's going to be very, very bad for other people. Uh, how much of this is a distraction away from the gun debate or a Russian investigation? So um, I have been asked that question, and I don't know. Uh, it would be unfair for me to, to answer that question. I would only have a personal opinion on that, and uh, your listeners deserve better uh, than my answer to your question. I would love is, your personal opinion. <laughs> but it is a question that has been risen here in D.C. Uh, how are Americans processing this? Is this too yeah. far into the weeds for the average voter on both sides of the border, or is this yeah. close enough to the job that people are paying attention? Right. Well, uh, one of the um, uh, theories uh, that um, uh, uh, is surrounding this issue and, and the president's announcement is the timing. And uh, uh, there are those here in Washington who think that the president wanted to announce this when he did and will, quote-unquote, formally announce it uh, um, in the days to come before a special election in southwestern Pennsylvania, which is next week, and uh, later next week. And uh, Pennsylvania is home to a number of steel interests. And so, um, uh, uh, he, uh, so the president is framing this conversation and his decision on jobs, jobs for American workers. Um, that, that being said, if you go to a number of uh, industry association websites today, there are an awful lot of press releases about how this will harm other industry sectors. But right now, as we turn the calendar page into November, it's western Pennsylvania. It's a special election. The GOP candidate is very, very uh, challenged. It's neck and neck with a Democratic challenger. Uh, Mr. President Trump would like to win that special election, and hence um, we have an announcement on steel and aluminum. That is the um, uh, the uh, the uh, going opinion um, that is somewhat cynical, perhaps, but um, it certainly is um, uh, surrounding this whole timing of the announcement. Uh, obviously, during the election campaign, and, and a lot of it directed towards the the Rust Belt, that you know we've got to bring this back, uh, make America great again, all of that. Yeah. Uh, when will America start to see the results of this? When will they start to see jobs? Uh, yeah. at, at what point does the rhetoric have to become solid performance in, in order to convince mm -hmm. Americans this is working? This is the right yeah. direction to take. Well, you know, um, I was in South Carolina on Friday uh, speaking to the South Carolina Automotive Summit audience, and um, the announcement by the president on steel and aluminum happened on Friday, and um, uh, or Thursday and into Friday, and so this was front of mind for the entire audience. And uh, at that af during that afternoon, you know, before I went on stage, I checked the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and it went down over 500 points. Um, that was very jarring 
very jarring. And um, the news cycles here in Washington and Detroit and Pennsylvania and Iowa um, were all reporting on the reaction by uh, the Dow Jones and other markers uh, of this announcement. Uh, when the president makes his formal announcement, we'll see how the Dow reacts. But this is a measurable, almost visible uh, uh, way of indicating what the popular reaction will be. And when products become either uh, fewer supplied on retail shelves and on dealerships and those cars become more expensive or the bridge construction gets doubled in price, uh, people, will, people and local leaders, mayors and governors will see that effect. Is this a done deal, do you think, Bridget? Is there any turning back on this? How do you think this is going to end? Uh, from all uh, from all indications today, uh, this is uh, the president is entrenched uh, on this decision. Now we have seen him turn around and turn away from his decisions. DACA on immigration would be a, a, a case in point. The so, gun control issue just control, last week. That's right. You know, he's made very very strong statements, and then he talks to another group of people, and then he changes his mind. So we could see him changing his mind on this. Uh, no one is suggesting today that he will, however. If he does change his mind, how will that be interpreted? Because sooner or later, yeah. there's going to be another crisis, whether it's the steel industry, whether it's the NRA, whether it's any of this. Yeah. Uh, well, at what point do people right. say, geez, you know, we just don't know which president we're going to get on any given day? Right. And I think uh, one way to look at it also is, uh, you know, the next CEO of a major manufacturing plant uh, who is considering a greenfield investment in the United States might think twice. The, uh, the atmosphere, the economic environment might be too unpredictable. Um, so the foreign direct investment volumes in the United States uh, in the months to come and the years to come is something else also to watch. Fascinating times. Bridget Matisse yeah. has been with us. Bridget, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Not at all. Good luck. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Boy, what a bizarre bizarre scenario to have a, uh, a city go through. And, and uh, you know, you wonder where it comes from, especially when Hamilton is going through such a great metamorphosis and, and great things are happening here. And then there's just a bunch of people who, I don't know, Say whatever you want. Uh, who's encouraged them? I'm not sure. But, you know, as Andrew Horbath said, you got a cause, you want to protest, you want to make some noise. Yeah, go ahead. But this just seems to be anarchy, which, uh, you know, might be fun for them uh, hiding inside their costumes, uh, but not so much uh, for the businesses and residents uh, that they leave behind. Uh, we're going to talk about that and also uh, interesting topic, uh, especially as information uh, is coming out, then uh, more seniors are dying on Canadian roads than any other group. How do you have the conversation with the parents about stopping driving? According to a new report, uh, more are dying on Canadian roads, seniors than any other group. Uh how do you have this discussion with your parents? Are there enough guidelines and laws in place to 
protect us against this sort of thing. Let's bring in Gary uh, Gary Dierenfeld, social worker, yoursocialworker.com to find out more. He is with us now. Gary, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Great to be with you again. Let's start with Lock Street, uh, since that is in the news right now, and it's something that uh, the town is still kind of, I think, shaken over. How, How do you describe this? Well, first of all, I'm shaken uh, by it as well. You know, I live here in the greater Hamilton area in Dundas, and uh, this is not how I think of our city by any means. Hamiltonians are law-abiding, respectful people. We're talking about a street lined with uh, small businesses, people who want to do well for the city, keep their nose clean, so to speak, and offer a lot to to our community. So the fact that um, anyone could brazenly uh, run through there in such a large pack, 30 people, this takes considerable organization to pull off, and with seemingly no other intent intent, uh, than to do harm, this is something that hurts us all, appalls us all, and and, uh, scares us. Uh, We are the ungovernables. What does that mean? You know, um, I'm having a hard time understanding that. These are people who may have felt uh, very disenfranchised in uh, our political system. Uh, They don't have a voice. They may be unemployed. Um, And and they're saying, you know, no one's going to control us. We can do what we want. Uh, I like the headline, Brazen. It was Brazen. But these are folks who seem to be uh, so counterculture that it's not even a matter of being counterculture. It's we're not accountable to anyone for anything, and we can do as we please. It's like there is no cause. There is no cause. We're it's the anti-cause, yeah. so to speak. And, you know, I, I, some people are going to shoot me for saying this, but I, I also come to what we see in the U.S. and the Trump effect, where any cause is given a platform, including Nazis, that um, their cause can be made equivocal to anyone else's cause, and this is abjectly wrong. And so we have an emboldened group of people, the result of Trump, who feel they can say anything they want these days. With because, them. Gary, there's good people on both sides. Uh, doesn't it just make your blood boil? Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know. What so have all of these people now been given the authority? Because, and again, you know, I know you're going to get comments on this. I am, too. Sure. Here we are blaming Donald Trump. But Donald Trump's basically given permission for deplorables to, you know, to, to be deplorable. Yeah, and, you know, again, I, I'm sure I'm going to get stepped on for this, but I do personally equate this with right-wing conservatism, where um, one's personal agenda needs to be the public uh, social agenda, where my personal needs and wants should be everyone else's needs and wants, and we don't think in terms of occlusion, we don't think in terms of uh, gender equality, um, it concerns me that that the right has gone so far right, um, and and they're brazen as well in in their 
in their views, from my perspective. As we've said, you know, many times, I mean, we certainly live in a land of extremes now. Uh, yes. That's for sure. When your end game is anarchy, though, how do how does the public respond to this? How does how do police respond to this? Yeah, good question. Uh, because it's hard to feel safe no matter what. Again, it's, it's not, not like not... you're it's not like you're fighting for pipelines or the environment or this, that, or the other. I mean, there just doesn't seem to be a I common know. ground here. And as police. Um, you can't even plan for something like that, yeah. or at least not plan well, because you don't know where the target will be, and it is a low-frequency event. So it's not like you have an army sitting on the side forever waiting. Yeah. So uh, thank goodness there's a lot of video surveillance. Um, they are going to comb through that like never before. They are going to track these people, and um, you got to know that once they find one, they'll find two. Once they find two, they'll find four. Yeah. And they'll work them through the system. What, is your, what are your thoughts on the costumes and the fact that they were ditching those to blend in with everybody else? What, is that t- what does this tell us about them? Well, again, very well organized that uh, they came quite prepared. They had a plan in place. They executed their plan and, quite frankly, so far, successful. Outsiders or Hamiltonians? <laughs> well, I heard the news report. Uh, some Apparently we get a lot of, yeah, I, Ross McLean and uh, Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun have said the same thing, that this is, uh, these are groups. And there, was, and there was someone else that was on the news with Ted talking about uh, how they've seen this at development offices and where they're holding symposiums and such to get people to develop uh, in the cities. These people show up and, well, they're anarchists and just, you know. That yeah, is all it, bad. We, we saw that when the G7 was in Toronto as well. And that's what, apparently there's a lot of parallel here. Yeah. And so um, I would hate to think that this would be the behavior of Hamiltonians. I think we, uh, as a group, know much better than that. And have a lot more pride in our city. Well, no kidding. No kidding. I mean, we do have pride in our city. And it's a good city. And... Um, if that's, if that's what you want to do, stay away. So what advice do you have for those that are on lock and those that are a bit shaken up by all of this? And, you know, I mean, it's great to see the support. We're going to see that on Saturday again. But, but how do you react to something like this? Well, it's a traumatizing event, quite frankly, because your personal safety and security is put at risk um, in a way over which you have very little control. Uh, If they don't have video security in their stores at this point, I'm sure that they're going to uh, be investigating the value of video security, which doesn't necessarily uh, help you in the moment. It may provide some degree of deterrent, but hopefully it helps us. Um, catch these folks after the fact, at least. All right, let's move on. Uh, more seniors dying on Canadian roads than any other group. This is certainly nothing new as far as having this discussion. Obviously, as the baby boomer uh, segment of the demographic moves through, we're going to see more of this. Um, how do you have this discussion with mom and dad? It's time to hang up the keys. Yeah, well, firstly, uh, um, car crashes, um, when we look at the demographics, it's, uh, we see in what we call a U, um, it's, it's, uh, they're the highest for teenagers. Car crashes are also the leading cause of death for teens. Yeah. And then we see it uh, for the seniors. It's all for different reasons. Young kids don't understand the nature of risk, and our seniors may not appreciate when their cognitive capacity and even sometimes their physical capacity 
is undermining their ability. Um, it is uh, frequently not the senior who, who may recognize their decline, but the loved one around them. And let's face it, uh, a driver's license is a ticket to independence. And who amongst us, uh, assuming we drive, would ever want to give up that independence? So it does require those challenging discussions. Um, I've been there with my stepfather who, who finally, at I think it was around 90, 90 92 or so, uh, voluntarily gave up driving. <laughs> my mother at 93 just got a new car. Wow. <laughs> wow. Good for her. But here's the thing. <laughs> she's self-monitoring and she's realistic. Yeah. And so she drives locally and quite frankly, she's, she is more than capable. Yeah. So um, if you have um, an aging parent, uh, keep an eye on the car. When you start seeing scratches on any of the corners of the car or the body that seem kind of inexplicable, that's an indication that um, their judgment, uh, be it field of vision, be it um, uh, responsiveness to braking, be it being able to um, determine how close they are to an object, that's an indication that maybe you should start having that talk to give up the license. The more scratches you see on the senior's car, it raises the probability of a serious crash coming. So how do you have that discussion? And because as you said, I, you know, um, I remember, I think it's after 80 that uh, they have to start going for their test again. And yep. I remember my parents going through that and being very anxious and nervous about it. And it was odd because we were joking. My dad got 100%. <laughs> it's like he's probably got to never got 100% on anything in his life, <laughs> but he wanted to make dang sure he got that. So, uh, you know, and, and as you said, it was a big deal for them. So how do you, when it is time, how do you have that discussion? Yeah, so it's a courageous conversation. You're going to take your loved one aside and say, I love you and I'm worried. And, and uh, it's not to say that there's necessarily a problem, but this is what I'm worried about. And I'm wondering how you feel. I wonder if you've noticed anything. And, you know, here's what I've noticed. You know, what do you think's going on? And I wouldn't go into these conversations with the goal of taking away somebody's license. Uh, because then you're going to get into the fight all or none. I either have it or I don't have it. Um, the other things that you can do is speak with uh, your physician and have uh, your uh, loved one, your senior loved one, speak with their physician, because physicians are empowered and must make a report to uh, the licensing bureau if they feel this person is at risk driving. The other thing that you can do is there are a lot of driving instructors out there who specialize working with seniors. Hmm. Encourage your loved one to take a refresher course. Maybe Good idea. An hour, maybe it's a few hours, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, just to to have some some rules of the road updated, you know, and to have their driving assessed. So so it's not you necessarily pulling somebody a loved one's plug but at least opening up the dialogue. Whose responsibility is it? Well, I think uh, that's a, you know, you're talking to a social worker. I think it's all of our responsibility. Um, at the end of the day, it's the person behind the wheel. They're the ones with the, the keys in hand. Uh, however, as a loved one, 
Um, you know, just like I wouldn't want to see somebody getting into the car after they've been drinking and they're inebriated, I have a social responsibility. So from that perspective, I do hope that uh, loved ones start the conversation. And let's face it, you know, I'm in the demographic. I'm 62 years of age. We're that bubble going forward, and there's a lot of us out there. And just the sheer numbers, if we're not really equipped to handle a motor vehicle, we are creating havoc for many others. You bring up an an interesting perspective. Uh, We're looking at it from the kid's standpoint, the adult who now has aging parents. Uh, What if you're the senior? How do you handle this? Because it is a lot of uh, a loss of uh, independence and such. If you're a senior, what conversation do you have with yourself? Uh, With yourself? Yeah. Am I still capable? What are my alternatives? And, and and how do you how do you how do you feel good about where you are in life? I mean, it's not like it's an accomplishment. <laughs> but you can turn it into an accomplishment. Yeah. You you can say you know what? Now I've earned really, a chauffeur. <laughs> do I really need the expense associated with owning and driving a car? You're into it for a couple of grand on the insurance, let alone at least a couple of grand for the price of ownership. That pays for a lot of taxis or Ubers. The other thing is, many of our um, aging population, they are really internet savvy. Uh, or yeah. just pick up a phone, because you can now have groceries and so much delivered so easily and not at great expense. So the money that you, could, you had put to driving the car, there are these other services available to you. And sometimes we just need to educate people with respect to all the alternatives to driving that are available, and it can make the transition easier. Are there enough, uh, as as a society, as a government, what have you, are there enough guidelines in place to help? Uh, is there something that's being overlooked here? Are we putting the onus on someone that shouldn't have that? Yeah, I'm not the best person to answer that. But I I can tell you that if you speak with the family doctor, they have a lot of power in this area, whether or not they want to exercise it. Sometimes the family doctor, uh, just like in the articles, they'll refer the aging person to a gerontologist for a more in-depth assessment of their cognitive ability. And then that person uh, may make the decision to to restrict the license and and, uh, send the information in. How do you uh, how do you make sure you're happy in old age? <laughs> you know, like it's uh, with those of us who who have parents in that age, and and some handle it differently than others. How, how do you, you know, and, and there's illnesses, there's other things that come in, there's things that change your life as, as we're talking about here. How do you go through it and say, ah, and just be at peace with it all? Yeah, you know what? That's a question that applies at any age, uh, Scott. Yeah, good point. If you're not happy young, you probably won't be happy when you're older. There you go. And so how do we find meaning in life? How do we find fulfillment? And hopefully we do that through our relationships. So typically the more intact our relationship, the more meaning uh, we find and the better off we feel. And so for some folks, it may mean finally repairing some of those relationships. There was a psychologist, um, Eric Erickson, a lifespan psychologist. He studied the Lakota Indians in the States, and he came up with his theory. And at the end of life, he said, you know, we're, we're wrestling with integrity versus despair. 
And integrity mm. is seeing, uh, reaching our passing with a sense of wholeness, with, with a sense of um, having done well, uh, feeling good about ourselves. And, and despair is we don't feel good about ourselves and our relationships may not be intact. And, of course, um, as we take stock of the ledger, those things about which we feel good versus not, um, that's how we determine, you know, integrity versus despair. And here's the rub. You don't get to rewrite the ledger. Hmm. You make that ledger on a moment-to-moment, day-by-day basis. So I encourage people to think about which side of the ledger any particular behavior is going to go into and let that guide your decision. Gary Dierenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com to find out more. Gary, as always, thank you for the guidelines of life. Much appreciated. (laughs) All the best, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.